You're listening to EG. I'm Pui Guan Man, news editor, and you've tuned in to our special episode on the new tougher rules coming in for commercial real estate and valuation practices. Peter Pierre-Gray's long-awaited independent report for the RICS into investment valuations will put 13 key recommendations into action after the RICS's standards board review immediately accepted them all. These range from a new valuation compliance officer function at the major firms to a new regulatory quality assurance panel, turning to the discounted cash flow model as the main methodology and strengthening audit trails for meetings between clients and valuers. Just a few of the uh, recommendations coming in, but they are designed to be a so-called wake-up call for the industry and establish a system fit for the changing modern world. But are they far-reaching enough to solve the big issues facing valuers and help build trust in valuations? I'm joined by four industry experts today for their views so that we can get our teeth into it a bit more. With me today are Andy Pyle, UK Head of Real Estate at KPMG, Claire McGowan, Head of Portfolio Valuation at Savills, Ollie Saunders, Head of UK Commercial Valuation and Alternatives at JLL, and Charles Smith, Chairman of UK and Cross-Border Valuation and Advisory at Cushman and Wakefield. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance by now to digest uh, the 81 pages uh, in the report. I guess I'd like to start us off by just getting a general sense of how everyone's feeling about the recommendations. Uh, you know, is there a sense of relief, uh, disappointment, uh, mixed feelings? Uh, Claire, I'll start with you. Um, thank you, Pui. From my point of view, I'm very pleased with the report and uh, the recommendations. I think it's very well written. Uh, actually quite joyous to read. You say 81 pages, but I didn't find it particularly taxing. Um, I think that the 13 recommendations are clear and concise, and they are certainly there to move, I feel, the valuation industry and all stakeholders firmly into the, the 21st century. So I'm really pleased and very supportive of the report. Okay, great. Um, Andy, what about you? Well, um, when you read the report, um, you can see the, the depth and breadth of work um, that, that Peter Pereira Gray and, and the expert advisory panel have done. There's numerous references to the accountancy profession, and I'm an accountant rather than a surveyor and, and, and valuer. And there's a few instances where they've clearly um, taken a lead on what the accountancy and specifically the auditing profession have done. There's also other areas where you know, Peter's very clear that he he doesn't think that going as far as has been gone is a sensible idea. So I think this is, I mean, I agree with Claire. I think this is a really well put together um, set of recommendations that works as a package. It does move the valuation profession a very long way forward, but it's also really nowhere near as far as the accountancy profession and specifically the audit profession has has moved and i think there are a number of potential things that could come at the valuation profession in the future um, as a result of just not going anywhere near as far as uh, as we're, we're going um, as accountants interesting yes i definitely um, want to come back to, to that point ollie how about you yeah, I, I think uh, the report was commissioned because it's one of public interest uh, to make sure that we have an efficient and uh, a good professional valuation industry. And I think Peter certainly was thorough in his investigations. We made you know serious recommendations or, or submission in our submission. We had very good roundtables. I think he was incredibly thorough. Um, and I think reading the report, he's very much listened. I think it's a very balanced and well considered report. 
I think whilst he says that valuers also need to change their behaviours, and I think he, I, I love that he said it's about a cultural and behaviour changes that we need to bring. And I think that was that that's a very important point. But also, I think you know it's important to remember that there are also um, behaviours from clients that he wants to see changed as well in terms of things like valuer pressure, which is exerted. Um, and I think he's spot on to move the industry towards a discounted cash flow approach to valuation and to be more analytical and to look at other markets. He talks about debt markets and listed markets and so on. So he does want us to um, have a profession to which we should be really proud of and to be absolutely cutting edge. So I, I think it was, um, it was fantastic. I think it was a very good day for the property industry as a whole. Yes, well, there's a, there was a lot to, to unpack uh, in, those, uh, in those points that you raised. Uh, so, yes, it would be great to come back to those um, too. But um, first off, uh, Charlie, over to you for, for your thoughts. Uh, thank you, Pri. Well, uh, just a couple of things uh, without repeating others. I think definitely we welcome the report and its recommendations. I think they're balanced, sensible and proportionate. Uh, we definitely uh, uh, will see them enhancing the valuation profession anything that really moves forward on transparency and therefore trust and confidence has to be welcomed many of the recommendations he's put in fact are already part of our day-to-day -day work and i'm sure the same for claire and ollie uh, and, and we're looking to strengthen that i think we're all in the business of delivering you know independent and transparent and, and most importantly accurate valuations and anything that can be done to enhance uh, that uh, aim uh, and intent is, is obviously very welcome Great. Um, I mean, you are, I mean, just to come back to the, the point, um, Ollie, that you were making about sort of um, the, the cultural and behaviour sort of changes that were sort of flagged uh, in the report. I mean, you, you're all at the top of your profession, so I imagine you'll have seen it all, really. I mean, given your accumulated sort of wisdom and experiences, were there any recommendations in there that especially resonated? You know, maybe one that you might have seen and thought, oh, wow, that would have been especially helpful to see when I was just starting out or, you know, when I was forming certain client relationships. I mean, perhaps, Ollie, if I throw that one to you. But. Yeah, I, I, I think I think his call for sort of technical improvements and moving to discounted cash flows and being modernised, I think he, he makes a reference to the all risk yield will be short lived. And I thought that was that was fantastic, like something that we've been advocating for a long time. Um, I think also, you know, having seen the pressure that clients sometimes put on valuers I think some of his comments like we should be reporting to the audit committee rather to the rather than the fund manager and those people that are remunerated puts sort of clears the air a bit I think in terms of the pressure that's there and other things that he talked about about client behaviors I think was was, was very important and but also some of the recommendations like recording your your um, valuation discussions that was in previous reviews actually so it was guidance that's been around for 20 years so i think what it is also doing is saying that everybody needs to pull up their socks in terms of standards and the ways that we behave across both valuation and and uh, from, from the client side as well i know we're jumping around a little bit mm. here but on the issue of sort of dcfs um, we've talked to, I mean, we, there's a clear sort of uh, case for it, but what are the, the sort of downsides to it? Could the heavier sort of focus on a, on a predictive element present more complications than not in, in, you know, creating a valuation that's spot on? I think the first thing to say is that um, almost all valuers that I can think of and that I interact with both within Cushman and outside deal with uh, cash flow explicit uh, valuation. So the days of the, the 10 YP, factoring in all risks of the property were gone you know decades ago 
um, you know, we, we look at uh, void rates, unrecoverable costs, capex, and so forth. But what we don't do at the moment is factor in uh, rental growth or rental decreases beyond today's ERV estimated rental value levels. And I think that will be the most interesting thing to explore amongst others, which is that um, that additional layer of sort of judgment, if you like, which will take us into the future. So I think it's great. Anything that increases transparency and understanding is to be welcomed. I don't think anybody should be under the illusion that DCF in and of itself will create greater accuracy of valuations, but it will create greater understanding and will rightly force valuers to look uh, into the future. Uh, and I think that that is a very positive thing. And we'll need to work very closely with colleagues, uh, you know, in capital markets and elsewhere and with our clients to ensure that there is some consistency there because I think that's really important as well. Claire I see you, saw you nodding there. Um, yeah I was, I was going to just agree with everything that Charlie's just said. I mean the traditional investment method evaluation we adopt at the moment is effectively a shortcut DCF um, by widening the number of parameters we consider being more explicit, I completely agree, it will provide a further layer of transparency. Uh, I suppose subjectivity could then creep into those different um, inputs that are going to be put into our cash flows. But again, it's all about information gathering. As valuers, we're here to interpret the market, not set it. And we just need to make sure we've got the information available to provide robust calculations with um, metrics that can be supported so yeah so I was just going to add to, to the point around um, looking further forward and, and coming in and thinking about future rental growth one of the things that we fed into the review around transparency was and this is more of a financial statement sort of perspective um, understandably but um, <clears throat> getting more and more detail into the financial statements of property companies where the valuation of investment property is the biggest single number on the balance sheet and the biggest single area of judgment from an accounting perspective. So being really clear about what are the assumptions that are actually being made in the valuation is going to be really, really important um, just because actually more disclosure will just help with transparency for the users of those financial statements and, and, and hence valuations. And I think on DCF, I mean, it's important that Peter says that it's the primary method. He doesn't say it's the only method. Right. So yeah. I think what we're seeing in Europe is, is that our colleagues there, they typically value on a traditional approach and then DCF. And then when they get more comfortable, they swap the other way around. So DCF becomes primary. But it's also linked to his decision that we as valuers can stay within multidisciplinary firms because it's hugely important, particularly in times of market flux like we've been through over the last couple of years, that I can understand from cap markets colleagues and debt colleagues and leasing colleagues what's going on and see how people are pricing assets. So that's that's the reason that he's allowed us to stay within the multidisciplinary firms and not do what's happened to some of Andy's colleagues and to farm out the audit profession. And that enables you to get good valuations. So I think you know he wants us to move to DCF because he's seeing people acquire assets and deciding on pricing through the DCF methodology in an explicit nature as well. And to also challenge us about our skill base as well. So I don't think... Um, uh, you know, a lock-up shop in Rotherham will still probably be valued on an all-risk yield, probably for the foreseeable future, if that's how the way the market prices it. But um, you know, multi-let industrial estates, I think, have to move towards a much more explicit DCF approach. We've got things like ESG coming towards us and how we adapt to that as well. So, 
um, you know, our skills are being called on even more um, in these times as property is changing so quickly. And I think it is a recognition, isn't it, that when I started 25 years ago, it was all 25-year leases. I mean, I very rarely value those these, day, these days. Uh, I think, Ollie, as well, it's going to be really interesting because I think there's going to be a change of conversation with our yeah. clients as well because, uh, you know, I've sat in, as you and, and Claire and others have sat in meetings with fund managers uh, uh, and investors for donkey's years, and I can't recall ever yet having a conversation where they said, Charlie, forget the initial yield, forget the equivalent yield, forget the capital value per square foot, tell me what your discount rate and your rental growth is. That's not a conversation that has ever been had. And I think yet they they, they are looking, you know, th these investors are pricing and looking at this and our capital markets colleagues are using discounted cash flows. Mm -hmm. So we need to change that conversation, not only from the values, but with our, our clients need to as well to say, well, we're talking uh, in a similar manner. And I think that's going to be a really interesting development. No, I, I agree. And I think we have, you know, we, we're increasingly using more and more DCF, I think. And it's it's a sense check, isn't it? I mean, I think you need to stand back and look and do various different sense checks from a discounted cash flow. What does it mean in terms of yield profile, various things, sensitivity analysis, scenario building, all those things. Quite. So um, what it means is that our job is going to become more involved and more complicated, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, what does that mean for you know, the amount of work that we're going to have to do to produce evaluation in a more complex world. And, you know, let's talk about fees and profitability, because what is this review going to do to the fees that our clients are going to have to pay us to deliver this higher quality advice? Um, and uh, that's something that, that, you know, we're going to work through, I'm sure, as an industry with our clients and collectively and with the RICS as well. Um, but um, the, there may be fee implications of all this. And, and there, there has been within the auditing profession, if you look at, um, you know, FTSE, um, FTSE 350 mm -hmm. audit fees over the past five years. You know, their audit fees have been on a very long-term decline up until about five years ago, and 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 there, there's been, you know, significant amounts of fee growth because of the additional amount of work that boards and audit committees are actually doing. Um, the interesting thing for us is actually, I think, it feels to us as though our, our regulator is more comfortable with leaving audit in is part of a multidisciplinary firm but what we are moving towards now is much more operational separation of our of our of our audit business from the rest of the firm and the other thing that has happened um, has been significant restrictions have come in place for public interest entities so listed companies banks insurance companies and, and, and others around what non-audit services you can provide to an entity that you audit and and that's something which is which isn't really covered um, in these sets of recommendations but but there's there's an op operational separation we are finding because we're going through it at the moment is actually very, very, you know, complicated um, and you have to be quite practical, but it runs into, you know, how are senior people um, performance managed and rewarded? Um, how are you actually sort of setting up the governance of, of your firm? Um, there's there's a huge amount in all of that, which, which isn't which isn't really covered. But and then the other thing I just say is actually from a culture perspective, the big change I think we've seen in terms of culture and mindset has been the role of an auditor is to challenge management on what management think and we're reporting to the audit committee and shareholders and and actually peter's last recommendation around culture and behavior there's actually that's the one one bit of it where there's very very little 
in this document about what needs to be done here. And actually, the recommendation is to, to do more work on it. But the biggest change I think that's going to be needed here is valuers feeling comfortable that actually you've got the license within your own organizations to actually go and tell when a client is putting you under pressure and saying that number isn't acceptable and there's going to be consequences for this for your firm and all of this sort of stuff which might be less explicit and more implicit but valuers have got to feel comfortable that they can um, they can stand up to that sort of pressure and that they've got a governance framework inside their firms that will actually allow that to happen. Yeah, and I think that five-year rotation and the fact that values are reporting to the audit committee, not the person that's remunerated by the outcome of the valuation, is quite a neat way that Peace has dealt with that. Yeah. Plus also with the the, the long-name panel um, that is being appointed at the RICS. Actually, what that means is, is, is that we, you know, we've got a regulator with teeth. And I do sense that if the behaviours don't change within a relatively short period of time, that they're going to come again at us, aren't they? And that, that there will be that separation. If it doesn't work, we've got to prove yeah. that this works. And if it doesn't, then we're going to have another review, I think. So perhaps something we need to think about is how quick we, imp you know, how quick we get on with this. I don't think we can hang around and, and uh, not see these changes. I think it's going to be a very fast changing year in 22. Um, and yeah. so I, th I think it was a very considered solution for our clients and the public interest that Peter came up to for those reasons. And he well, looked very hard at the audit commission, audit um, and, yeah. and medical industries as well, which I thought was interesting how he did that compare and contrast in his report. I think two points, if I may, pre just add on that is one on speed. I, I agree with Ollie. I, personally, I don't think we can, uh, as valuers, wait for the RICS to appoint their project manager and implement these recommendations. I mean, we at Cushman will be cracking on uh, we're making sure that we're, we're, we're well ahead of, of, of any formalization of that. And I think the second point, which is really still a very important one, which is um, value was very important, as Claire pointed out, need to you know mimic the market, rep, not lead it, but, but, but uh, represent it. And one of the key ways we do that is being very close to the market in an appropriate way with colleagues who are acting on transactions. And I think Peter was, uh, you know, he did say it was a very finely balanced judgment mm -hmm. on his part, but we welcome the fact that we're still able to um, work alongside colleagues in transactional world, uh, because I think it would be retrograde if we were to be removed from that. And I think you saw it in Italy where they did do it and, and the quality of valuations did uh, deteriorate and they've had to reverse that. But it is incumbent on us as valuers to make sure, as Audi said, to make sure that this works and, and is seen to work, because um, if there was another review, uh, I would anticipate it would be much more draconian in, in perhaps its outcome. You've actually all managed to sort of preempt my question, really, which is to, to ask about, you know, when we take into account that corporate history is sort of in general over the past couple of decades has been riddled with sort of major audit scandals. You know, even though real estate seems to have avoided that sort of accountancy-esque fate for now, uh, you know, whether we thought this report is the definitive end of the issue or whether you thought attention will once more return to it in in future i mean you've we've touched upon this but uh, claire i guess i'll throw that one to you as, as we've not heard your thoughts on that yet um i think we need to embrace this quickly with enthusiasm and show the world and i liked peter's comment about um valuation transparency being key to society societal trust in valuation i love that phrase and I feel that we need to take that as a really strong uh, mission statement almost for us to uh, embrace these changes. And certainly at Sabbles, uh, we are 
all over it. That's not very, I can't think of a better way of saying it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the, 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 thing I would, the thing I would say about speed is, <clears throat> I think I think you're you're all absolutely right to say that the, the, the right thing to do is to actually get in front of this and to move quickly, because I think, um, you know, uh, 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 the optics of of evaluation professional RICs dragging their feet when actually this is a very, very sensible of sort of package of measures that moves things forward, but isn't isn't anywhere near as extreme as it could have done. And actually, you know, actually maintaining RICs as both the standard setter and owner of the red book and also being the regulator, um, you know, is is something that's important. And actually, the you know the things like the quality assurance panel. Now, if that mimics what we've seen happen with the the audit quality um, review, which is you know a a very very sort of um, important review body for. Um, for, for the profession. You see it in the US with the Public Company Audit Oversight Board, um, you know, and uh, and you've seen it with regard to some of the sort of, um, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley in the US and then the UK version, which is starting to come to come in. I think if, you know, Rick's, it's really important for the profession that as seriously as as, as your, your firms are all clearly going to take, take this and move quickly, it's also really important that Rick's um, establishes the, the specific sort of things that they're being tasked to do at speed, um, because um, because actually otherwise this may just end up and probably at the time of the next crisis being taken out of the industry's hands, and that that may well put you in a position where actually you do end up with an outcome which is suboptimal for for clients and markets and society as a whole. I think just on that speed point, Priya, one point I would flag is that uh, whilst there is obviously a clear desire amongst us all um, to, to move on quickly, um, we will need to be thoughtful um, uh, around the transition, particularly of, of rotation of, of valuers, um, particularly for large funds. Uh, and, um, you know, this is going to cause uh, uh, some indigestion, I think, where, you know, you've got multiple funds changing valuers and large funds uh, and uh, going to the public interest point, whilst uh, there's a clear desire for uh, the valuers to, to, to get their um, shop in order, we, we must also keep that public interest in mind about accuracy and robustness of valuations um, and deliver on both. So not dragging one's feet, but also ensuring that our clients are, are well looked after during that transitionary period and being realistic. I mean, personally, I think, you know, a 12 month period to, to move uh, valuers is, is, is one that we should anticipate. Um, because just because of the number of assets, I mean, for smaller portfolios should be quicker, I, I, I think. Um, but we need to be careful about that. We've mentioned that, you know, the, the rules are designed to sort of enable a valuation uh, system uh, fit for a changing world. Um, I, I quote that, uh, a changing world. Um, when you take a step back and look at the possibility that more of the valuation process could be automated in future, I mean, how, how much do you think the review's outcome accommodates for that kind of tech-led future? Andy, what do you think? I'll start with you. Um, I mean, I'm a big, big, big proponent of greater use of technology across all of the property industry. And actually, what I would say is that, you know, the big, the big agency firms, um, you know, 
on this call and otherwise have, have actually really embraced that in terms of running that through their business. And I do think we need to recognise how far those firms in particular, I think they've gone a lot further than the property owning companies. So I'm sure that everyone is looking actively at where technology can help um, help around valuations. Um, and I'm sure that there will be progress to be done. And I think the report anticipates that everyone will go and look at that, as well as actually embracing, you know, advanced analytics, you know, alongside it. Having said that, you know, this is an area of professional judgment. And so what we mustn't have is a situation where technology takes over, because actually, I think the thing that gives, um, you know, the markets and, and the public interest sort of what it needs is actually the experience of, you know, people such as those on this call and and your teams that that have you know that have been built on a career effectively of 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 writing these valuations and and so we 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 just need to be really mindful to get the balance right there for me also i, th- I think you know P- peter refers to um the sort of the amount of information that's available to us as valuers and that we should look to other markets so actually in my career the amount of data that is easily accessible to me is huge so i think tech is about making us much more efficient and much more insightful and much more analytical in the same period of time um that that, that we have um and uh, yes he, i think there's a reference isn't there that you know there will be avms but uh, there'll always be that human individual that will be taking that that judgment call uh, over it as well. Um, yeah, and I, 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 th- I think one of the critical things on that te- technology piece will be, um, I mean, the winners will be those who are able to identify the wood for the trees. Because one, one of the yeah. downsides, of course, with data is you just get so much off it. Yeah. How, how on earth do you get to what's really important and really relevant? And I think that for me is the key, is identifying what those bits are and ensuring that when we're doing that look across that we are able to, particularly when markets are illiquid in sense of the, the quantities of, of volumes and we've all seen that post GFC and we saw it sort of post COVID um, and I think that will be where we as a profession will gain much more in terms of the confidence levels and people understanding and I think one of the great things that we've got to do as a profession is engage much more uh, energetically in articulating how valuations are arrived at. I think there is a perception that they are some sort of scientific method um, skewed by sort of historic relationships and, and lo and behold they're not to be trusted and I think that is really incumbent on us to and, and this report does go a long way to deal with that but still as, as Andy's rightly said whatever you put into a cash flow the, there will be a substantial element of that which will be judgment professional judgment overlaying fact and, and that's really uh, important that we are able to articulate that to, to an, an audience so that they can understand it. But, but also Peter did address a diversity and inclusion in the uh, in the report, which I thought was good. But what he didn't address is about the diversity of skills that we need within evaluation. So actually, the sort of data analytical, financially uh, financial acumen, people with different insights, I think is important. So actually, moving forward is what you're taught at your university sufficient to be a competent valuer. And actually, we do need people with you know different skills than you're taught than I was taught 25 years ago. And indeed, that's how we're you know we're recruiting more non-valuers now than we ever have. You've got different skill sets. And I think I think had he put that in the report, I, I would have been pleased to see that. I guess Ollie picked it up a bit, didn't he, on the sort of post-qualification revalidation piece. But you're right. I think I mean yeah. we're I think we're all aware that we, we need to broaden um, the, the scope of the people that um, the skills that we have uh, at our disposal in order to sort of make sure we get the, the, the valuations as robust as possible. 
I think that's a broader challenge for the property industry as a whole. And you can see a number of a number of your clients bringing in, you know, people with a background in in data and analytics or um, or, or, or from different industries as well, because I think there's a recognition that the industry, you know, that the industry as a whole has that challenge. What do you think is that one key proposal in in that report out of the 13 that that you think could be the trickiest for uh, firms to implement either logistically or or, or even culturally and, and and why would that be? I don't think there are any that are particularly tricky. No, I would agree. There's nothing. I, th- I think I think um, there's nothing that was sort of raised eyebrows I mean they're very logical and I think we can we can crack on and I think as Charlie said we're doing it anyway I mean we do have compliance officers in our organizations and we have review and review processes in place so there's nothing I think that's um, going to keep me awake at night. I think the only thing I would say uh, which will require some um, um, immediate sort of I would say training and upskilling is around uh, the DCF point. Uh, because um, whilst I've talked about, you know, explicit cash flow evaluations all being done, we are going to need to um, upskill greater numbers of uh, individuals uh, to do these DCFs because there are a lot who, who do do it currently, but mm. but not they are the minority. Uh, and I think that's where the focus will need to be around that that training piece um, to ensure that, that, that everybody sort of is up to speed. What I would say, though, is I think there's actually there is a huge amount here for both RICs and all of the valuation firms to actually go and address and addressing it, you know, in a short period of time. I mean, I think Charlie um, talked about a concern around how do you manage rotation, especially when you you first start doing this. I, I do think there is going to be a lot of pressure um, on on both firms and RICs to actually get get going and actually implement this. And I also think um, you know, that, that as firms start to reflect on you know some of the the, the the challenges around how do we just make sure that that actually our valuation teams are are, are able and set up to um, to resist client pressure and to actually produce sort of ro- you know the increasingly robust valuations I think everyone's going to find that there's a huge amount of devil in the detail and actually some of these things will probably prove to be more complicated um, you know, to, <clears throat> to 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 implement, and ultimately, if there are if there is culture and behavioural changes, we probably all know. You know, changing culture within an organisation um, is is probably one of the hardest single things to actually um, to actually go and do. That's the one I think I'd pick in practice that people will probably struggle with, um, and that extends as much to RICS as it does to all of the RICS member firms as well, and to our clients as well. Yeah. That's a really good point, Ollie, because mm. actually, yeah, that's really important. Everyone. It's the entire industry. Mm. Everyone. And, and also our, our auditors and actually the level of investigation you do. And are you going to ask to see all the notes of our and recordings of our meetings with our clients as well? So what's the auditor's role and when do you call out bad practice? Yeah. And actually, one of the points that we made, which we were really pleased to see Peter address here, is we said, look, we see a huge amount of, of you know, evaluations every quarter as we're auditing financial statements. And, you know, many, most of them are, you know, excellent, thorough pieces of work that obviously we go through a challenge process on. But we do see instances where we can see that actually valuers have just failed to um, to adopt 
the you know clear red book requirements and actually having a route whereby we're able to go and um and make that clear to to ricks and and to have a function where we can give feedback on that i think is going to be really important um you know and actually that sort of culture of accountability but also ongoing quality improvement which i think the you know the quality assurance panel uh, recommendation will do i think will will have a very profound effect on actually improving um quality even further where that's needed yeah i mean it's it's, it's really important that no one is complacent and, and underestimates the size of the task um however what i would say is that there's as i think has been mentioned there's nothing in those 13 that leaves people really scratching their heads saying, how on earth are we going to make this work? I mean, I think that that's yeah. the, the key takeaway for me. Great. Well, I think we have covered a lot of, of ground. Um, I mean, I guess to, to wrap up, um, we, we touched upon this um, earlier, but um, I'd like to, to go around um, again and just sort of name that one missed opportunity that stood out to you if you felt there was one or alternatively, you know, one thing that might have been mentioned in, in passing that you would like to see the RICS take on and really put more focus on um, beyond the report. Uh, I mean, what would that be? Um, Claire, let's start with you. I actually don't think I can say anything um, in terms of that question, I'm afraid. I think it's a really strong report with some tangible, measurable recommendations. The speed of implementation would be perhaps my only uh, misgiving, but I think the community, the valuation community has responded very quickly and will continue to do so. Um, speaking as a valuer. Ollie, over to you. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, one of the things is um, that he only referred very briefly to the um, what's going on with indices and actually whether indices need to be reset and reviewed because there is obviously a lot of uh, emphasis that he puts onto those. So I wish he'd he'd perhaps made that one of those uh, recommendations. He made a brief comment on ESG and I, I, I think that should have had uh, more, more comment. And also the, there was a discussion during giving the evidence about reports on valuation accuracy and there was no sort of conclusion as to whether every year we should have a report saying how good the valuation industry is on valuations versus um, prices that have been achieved and I would be curious to understand from Peter why that was not included in that in that report because I think that could be quite a useful document it's you know obviously very complicated oh we could run a whole another podcast on it probably, but that's something I, I noticed. I look forward to having you on that, on that next <laughs> podcast. Um, Andy what about yourself? Um, well I think I mean for me, there's there's a handful of things where there are recommendations made for RICS to go away and do further work effectively, and then to go and issue guidance. So, um, I've, you know, culture and behaviour, we've 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 spent a fair bit of time talking about that. That's the biggest one for me. Um, but but there's a number of areas of sort of follow up for for further consideration, and it's really important that um, that that Rick's you know cracks on with with those because without that it's hard you know for all of the people on this call and the rest of the industry to to move um, you know as quickly as probably they would all like to do. Yeah, that's a, a fair point. Um, Charlie, over to you. I would say no no real missed opportunities. Uh, I think uh, Peter has rightly throwing down the challenge to valuers and to the RICS to, to put our house in order and, and to proactively engage uh, in order to improve, um, you know, that sort of public trust and confidence, which is ultimately, you know, the most important thing. The one thing that he did mention, which I thought was interesting right at the end on his closing comments was around professional indemnity insurance and the cost of that. 
Um, going to the public interest point, obviously, it would be unsatisfactory, I think, if we saw, you know, valuation um, aggregating to fewer and fewer suppliers who are able to provide it because of the cost. And I think, particularly in the UK, that that is an issue. Um, it was outside Peter's scope. So I don't think it was a missed opportunity, but one I think the industry generally uh, needs to to review and look at. Great. Well, I think we'll wrap up on, on that note. Um, but thank you to all my guests again for, for joining us today. And uh, thank you at home for listening. Hope you found it insightful. Uh, for more coverage on the incoming uh, reforms, make sure you check out our website at egi.co.uk forward slash news.